All right, we are going to read the scripture this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to turn to us in Genesis for my kiddos, our kiddos that are out there. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, big chapter eight, little chapter or little verse one. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. We're going to read Genesis chapter eight, verses one through 12. But God remembered Noah and all the animal and the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the waters had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and he took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. Okay, now we're going to turn to chapter 9, and it will start on verse 8. Um, this is the covenant. So it said, Then God spoke to Noah and said to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is, in, that is with you for perpetual generations I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring the cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh, and the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. That is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Probably slightly different Just amazing. I'll be honest, I was a little intimidated preaching this morning because uh, Mel and Candy have been doing this for like three, four, five, six, seven months. I don't know. Quite a long time. You can see that they've gone through all of the different things with the, uh, with the flood story. 
The flood story covers multiple chapters in the Bible. Um, I was uh, preparing uh, for this morning, um, this last week, and I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Because I can't, I can't preach all of that or else we'll be here until Super Bowl tonight. And no, I mean, I shouldn't say no, but some of you may like that. I don't know. Maybe you're not into the, uh, the sports ball thing. Um, I forgot to say anything about the Super Bowl because, I mean, it's cool, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to do Super Bowl sermon or anything. So the flood story, um, the idea that humanity has a central origin is scoffed at by some. The idea that mankind survived a worldwide flood and that it was only one family that did seems crazy to others. However, there is, there is a flood story in nearly every ancient uh, culture. You might be surprised how similar the different flood stories are. In fact, there's over 270 different flood stories of different people all around the earth. Probably the most famous one, other than the one you'd read about in Scripture, is part of the, uh, the um, Epic of Gilgamesh. And the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is a warrior king, and he's looking for eternal life. And he comes across this old man who tells him a story that in ancient times, uh, the gods wanted to destroy humanity because of their sins. And one of the god tells one of the gods tells this man that there will be this great flood, so he needs to make a boat. And it gives him the exact dimensions of the boat. And the boat's actually a, it's, it's more of not even like a rectangle, but a square. It doesn't make too much sense. And he's supposed to gather, um, he's supposed to gather the animals and his family. And the flood comes, kills everything besides him. But it goes much further than this. Some of these I knew, some of these I didn't know. And I had heard from uh, Pastor John MacArthur um, that, um, the uh, Sumo Kumbo tribe of New Guinea and the different American Indian tribes uh, across North America, the Anguentan Indians of the Northeast United States and Brazilian tribes, and a number of them, the original peoples of Cuba, Mexico, the natives of Alaska, of Greenland, of Hawaii, they have flood stories with a main character named, ready for this? Nu'u. So many different flood stories. And you wonder, it's like, why is this? Well, maybe because all of humanity came from one family, and that one family remembered the flood. They remember when great, 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 great grandpa used to sit the kids around the fire and tell them stories of a, of a people who had disobeyed, who had sinned so great that there had to be a flood that came, and what dreams came from such stories. If um, the flood would have been the the flood would have been the second most traumatic event in human history, second only to the creation of the earth itself. A worldwide flood changes the topography, it changes the geography, it changes everything about the world. If one's family survived and then spread out, how would the story change from generation to generation? What details would be lost? What added? When great-grandpa tells the tale to wide-eyed children around the fire at night, what dreams does that lead to? While there are many flood stories, the only one that actually has an account of what really truly happened was the one in Genesis given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which was read for us today. The rest really are a case of telephone. And skeptics sometimes will point out the differences between the different flood stories as proof that, well, it couldn't be talking about the same thing because they're not talking exactly the same. And to that, I would say, just ask anybody today, just find 10 random people and ask them what happened three years ago. You know what I'm talking about? Like with the pandemic? 
and I bet you get 10 completely different stories that diverge a lot more than a lot of these flood stories do. This is another, but these flood stories are a proof that something did happen in the history of humankind where the world was flooded. And we have, we have the privilege as believers to know that this is the truth. The first thing I want to talk about when we talk about the great flood, it is the main takeaway that is in the scripture, which is this. God does not whisper about sin. God does not wink at sin. God does not hold sin as something that is small. The story of the flood is, is in the flood itself is about justice. In all of the world, God only finds one family, really one man who is righteous. Man's thoughts were continually evil. They were used to be, there used to be a bumper sticker that said, only God can judge me. And I always thought, every time I saw that, I just kind of gasped because I'm like, only God will judge you and you should be concerned. You should be very concerned. If you lived in the days of Noah, would God find you? So you have to ask, what, what is my fate? What is my judgment? Who cares what other people might think about the way I dress or think or whatever, but what does God think about me? He knows my thoughts and intentions, and are they the same as the rest of humanity, or have I been redeemed? Now, once again, that saying that only God can judge me, that's true. Um, And I give you the story of the flood and ask you, in all the world, would God, who knows your heart, find you and set you apart? How does humanity get to the point in which a worldwide flood is necessary to wipe away that God is so grieved in his heart at the very state of humanity? Well, one, it says that it says that the thoughts and intentions of man were continually evil. One time uh, in our last church, me and Becca, uh, for a period of time, did the kids' ministry like we have right here, and we would do memory verses. And we did many memory verses. And I remember this one kid, he forgot all of them except for the one in Genesis that said the thoughts, uh, the thoughts and actions of men were evil continually. I was like, that's a good one to remember. And then that, that is the central truth. And out of, that, out, of that, um, out of that nature, people do act. I think probably one of the, the easiest ways of understanding this really is from J.R.R. Tolkien's work, The Lord of the Rings, with the orcs. The orcs were elves, and they were made beautiful with their long, flowing, Vadel Sassoon hair. And they were taken by the dark powers and then ruined a, new, a whole new nature from that point. C.S. Lewis would talk about how in man's disobedience, he has remade himself into a different thing. And certainly that is true. But another thing is true as well. It's who their heroes were. It says in those days, there was the Nephilim, the giants, that they were heroes of old. That's something I always catch on. They were their heroes. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, the wickedness of a people is great indeed when the most notorious sinners are men of renown among them. Their heroes weren't Batman, Superman, and Spider-Man. They were Lex Luthor, Joker, and the Green Goblin. It is somewhat troubling then that we see movie after movie trying to get us to sympathize with the villains of the story. It's like, for the love of Walt Disney, why are you making a movie about Cruella de Vil? <laughs> I mean, you're talking about the gal who wanted to skin puppies and make a coat out of them. How in the world? I, mean, I didn't even watch that movie, and I'm not going to. Or Maleficent. That's one of my favorite ones that we try to pretend like she has some sad background. Her name is Maleficent, the evil one. So I'm wondering her parents are thinking like, oh, well, we'll just name her the evil one, but she's just fried and a little fairy or whatever. I don't know what the deal is. 
It's a scary thing when our heroes are, the, are known not for, their, not for their virtues, but for their vices. And we see that so much of in our culture, that out of an evil heart, the people we look up to and we think are so great are people not of their, of their virtues, but their vices, that the most notorious sinners of men renown among them. That hits home when I was, Lord saved me when I was in seventh grade, and we had a, um, our kids here who are around that age. And I remember um, at that time when I was growing up, um, really popular was gangster rap. Now, hold, try to hold in your laughter here. I grew up in North Dakota, and me and my friends thought we were little OG gangsters. Because our heroes were Tupac Shakur, um, uh, Notorious B.I.G., Bone Thugs and Harmony, And out of that desire to be like our heroes, we did all kinds of terrible, rotten things. So I can only imagine what it was like in the days of Noah when the people that they were aspiring to were men of violence, of depravity, that the more wicked you were, the more famous you were. But of course, I don't really need to imagine that. I can just look around today. These are, unfortunately, the days of Noah. There's a song, Days of Elijah. I like the song in which we sing happily that these are the days of Elijah, miracles and prophecies. But the days of prophecies more likely are tied to the days of Noah, Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, um, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came, and they swept them all away, so so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus isn't even so much pointing out the evil of Noah's day, but the general apathy of the people. Noah's building a boat, so they just went along their life. No care of God, no care of righteousness, no care of what might happen. They thought truly they would never die for their sins, and they found out something very different. They get 120 years to get their affairs in order. And how do they spend that time? Doing whatever they they always did. 120 years. Genesis 6.3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Um, You could be forgiven if you believe that to be the maximum age of a human being today post-flood. That's what I thought for years. And then I read a very convincing article in Answers in Genesis and read the context around it. No, it was 120 years from the prophecy to the flood. They had 120 years to do something about it, maybe to repent. Now, there's nothing in that prophecy that says repent and I I won't do this. But I do remember many years after that point, there was a town called Nineveh. And they were sent a prophet. And that prophet told them, after a certain amount of time, this city's going to be destroyed. Not repent and you will be saved. Just a certain amount of time, you will be destroyed. And what do the Ninevites do? They put on sackcloth and ashes. They are grieved in spirit. And God, God lifts his hand from them. And Jonah, not to be confused with Noah, he's angry with the Lord. He's the prophet. And he says, I knew you were a God who is slow in anger and abounding in love. You are a forgiving God. And he's like, I should just die. I'm so angry. I know, it is, it's pretty funny. You know what I like about the book of Jonah? Jonah was probably the one writing that. That kind of shows you the attitude of faith that I don't need to be great in your eyes if I'm loved by my father. 
so anyway, let me go on here. 120 years. Um, this has been mistakenly understood after the flood. The maximum lifespan of a human is 120. But if you find somebody who's 121, that does not mean the Bible is wrong. No, not at all. This was a countdown to the flood. 120 years to repent and to turn from their wicked ways and plead for the mercy of God. We have in Genesis 6-6, God repenting. Genesis 6-6 in the King James Version says that it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. God, it says God repented. That's an interesting thing because, I mean, does, does God do anything wrong that he should repent is the way we understand repenting? You know, of, of course not. Of course, we're trying to kind of take our New Testament Greek word of metanoia and put it into the Hebrew, and it doesn't really fit. The translators of the King James Version thought that was a fine word, and I'm sure at that time it was, because what they didn't, what they didn't mean by repenting was that God is like, I made a mistake, I need to correct my mistake. What repenting means is to be struck to your very heart, to grieve. If any of you have a family member or, oh my word, a child who has done what is evil in the sight of the Lord, you understand the Father's heart in which he loves his creation, but he understands he loves justice. And he could be grieved to the heart to the point where he's like, it's enough. And gives him 120 years to repent, to turn to him. When it says that God repents, it means that he is just grieved to his heart. That's why many other translations will say that. God sees their hearts. And from the oldest to the youngest, their desire was continually evil. He didn't make a mistake, and he isn't correcting his incorrect ways. He's sad at his very heart because of what his creation is doing and has done. When preaching on the ark, I realized that I, once again, I can't cover everything in one sermon. So I decided to break it down by the symbols associated with the great flood, other than the great flood in Noah, but the symbols associated with salvation in that great flood. That being the ark itself, the dove, and the rainbow. The ark, that is salvation in the storm. You know, very rarely is somebody saved from a difficult situation in the scripture. Mostly they're saved in the situation. God does not send Noah to the only part on the whole earth where it won't flood. He has him build an ark to endure the flood. So many of us, we want to pray, God, keep me from all the bad situations. Keep me from all these things. Those are the very things that God may want to use you, use in you to make you more like Jesus Christ. I don't like that so much, but it's true. That there are times in my life, I remember the hardest times in my life where God is like, instead of, and I pray to God, take this from me. Like Paul would say, take this full thorn out of my flesh. And God's like, no. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, then give me the strength to endure it. I remember after college, my first real job was at this treatment facility. And um, I remember for the first six months, oh, I hated it. I mean, there was, no, there was the first job in my whole life where I'd wake up and I was like, God, it would have been great if I just was in a coma for the next couple of years. I just dreaded going to this job. It was the first job I've ever been to where you had an expectation of violence day in, day out. Um, I remember kids throwing chairs at me and stuff. I had to do restraints constantly. I'm not, I, I'm not a violent person. I don't like putting my hands on somebody else. Um, but you had to do it. You had to say, you had to protect them from themselves and somebody else. And I remember praying to God, God, take this, um, take this away from me. I remember I actually even, 
applied at other jobs, got accepted at another job that paid just as well. And I remember I, I got to the point and they were like, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're going to hire you. We're going to put you on. And I remember I finally prayed about it. And I, I kept praying. I, I, stopped, I didn't pray on purpose for this decision because I didn't want to know what God wanted to say about it. So before I said yes, I was like, let me pray about it. So I pray about it and God's like, nope. I'm like, but okay, but this is just a Joe job I have until I'm in the ministry, Pat, um, Lord. It's like, God's like, no, this is where I want you. This is your ministry. And I remember at the time, I'm just like, I'm like upset because I'm like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. The next six months were probably one of the best jobs I've ever had in my life. The avenues of ministry I had with these young men and young women were more deeper than I've had with anybody else in my whole life. And I would have missed all that blessing if I would have been like, God, instead of, instead of telling me how to build an ark, just tell me where it's not going to rain. The, the ark was big. You don't, need me, you don't need me to tell you how big it was. In fact, I think I have a slide on here to show you the, um, how it, how it uh, stacks up to other boats. You have the Queen Mary, the Titanic. Um, it is probably the largest wooden ship ever made. Um, we have this in front of us. You guys did such a great job, kids. I'm going to give you guys another hand. This is from me. I remember coming down there and seeing this. I'm like, whoa, okay, awesome. Um, the, the ark is huge. Of course, you don't need me to tell you that. You know, it needs, to, it needs to hold quite a lot of animals. We had the song today. I like that song. In high school, we sang a song like that. It's like, the animals are coming one by one. The old cow chewing on a caraway bun. Animals are coming two by two. The elephant and the kangaroo. Um, we know it's big. But you know what I want to point out in here is that... Uh, Noah, no clue, right? It didn't rain at that point. It hadn't rained on the earth. So he doesn't understand even the concept of a boat. How would you like if I told you, okay, you're going to build something? It's going to be something you don't even know exists. Okay, there's going to be like a deadly cloud vapor thing that's going to roll through and uh, typical filtration systems aren't going to work. So you need to build this and you need to do it exactly right or you and your family are going to die. That's what Noah got, you know, and he's like, okay, well, let's, let's get it done. You know, our understanding isn't mandatory, our obedience is, because God, we get to that point of humility where we're like, God, you know better than I. You know better than me about this situation. For there is a time where the Israelites didn't think that, they begged God for meat. I always love that story in the scripture. You see they're in the desert, they're wandering around, God is giving them bread from heaven, and they're like, you remember Egypt? It was great. We got to eat fish anytime we want. And Moses is like, you also got beatings anytime you didn't want. How does that sound? And God has enough. And he's like, you want meat? I'll give you so much meat, it'll come out your nose. And long story short, so many of them died because what they wanted so much caused illness and killed them. It wasn't safe to eat in the desert, the quail. But they, they didn't want to trust God. They just wanted to do their own thing. So many times we're that same way. We're like, God, I don't understand this, so I'm going to do my own thing. And we find out that doesn't work so well. Actually, it ends our destruction. And God was just really trying to look out for us. I think of it like my cat, Buddy, who will eat anything that isn't nailed down. And I have to like open up his mouth and, and have to yell at him, it isn't food. <laughs> Noah, on the other hand, he trusts the Lord. And for 100 years, 100 plus years, probably 70 years of actually building the ark itself. He follows God's designs to a T because he has that trust. 
there are two objects in the Bible called an ark. Now, I, I, had, I had fun writing that because you're thinking probably Ark of the Covenant, but it's a different word than this Ark right here. The word for Ark in Genesis is Tova or Toba, and it just means simply a cupboard or a chest. And um, it is not the Ark of the Covenant. That's a different word. The other Ark that you find in the Bible is the bassinet Moses' mom made for him when she floated him down the river. That's amazing, right? I mean, that... In both instances, this word is used for two different things, and it could have been used for somebody's cupboard, but it's not. It's used for, in both cases, building a structure that floats on the water to save you from the wrath that is to come. For Moses, it was a ma- the wrath of, of uh, Pharaoh. For, he, for Noah and his family, it was the wrath of God. The context I find to be amazing because we have something else that we should cling to that is our only salvation in the storm. When, when the rain started falling, the Lord shut the door that went to the ark and there was only one door. Somebody today will tell you there's so many roads to heaven. There's many doors. There's only one door. And when the door is shut, it's shut. But right now the door is open. And that door is through the cross. There's this old song. I, we were doing nursing home ministry this last week, me and, my, me and my wife. And I like to bring these hymns and talk about the history behind the hymns. And one of my favorite hymns is the old rugged cross. I will cling to the old rugged cross. The ark is God's grace and protection and salvation in the middle of the water. Water is used in the description for chaos, for chaos and evil. The beast comes out of the sea. It was an easy metaphor, I imagine, especially after the great flood. The water, the water of the de- the the waters of the deep were death. The ark that floats above the fig- figurative and literal salva- um, storm water is salvation in the storm. Do you think Noah cared if the ark was comfortable? You know, was this a pleasure cruise for him? I think not. In fact, I think the uh, the animals were awfully awfully smelly. You know, I don't think I ever understood to the what level until I moved to Becca's hometown because in that area of Iowa, sorry for those who live there, it's true though, um, there's all these uh, animal confinements and in the spring, it is unbearable if you are not from there. For, for a year and a month, they got to live there. You know, I don't think they cared. If, if he did, he, wasn't, he was in for a big surprise. Being in a boat in the middle of a storm is terrifying, let alone when you are in the storm of all storms, you cling to the wood of that boat because why? It's your only salvation. There is nothing else. That is why we sing about clinging to the old rugged cross. We know that if we are flung into the ocean of the chaos of sin, there would be no hope. So we cling to the old rugged cross like Noah and his family stayed in their only salvation in the storm. You know, Jesus, when he was walking this earth, he has a story of being on a boat in the middle of a storm. In Luke chapter 8, the disciples and him are on this boat, not in the ocean, just on a lake. And all of a sudden, a storm um, rises up and the, the disciples are freaking out. And they're like, we're going to die. Don't you care, Jesus? Why are you sleeping? Get up. And they're so worried. And you know something, I always thought that was kind of funny until I was on a little lake in a boat and it was a storm. Then I had a different perspective. Um, me and my friends, we were working at this Bible camp for the summer, and we decided to take the uh, paddle boats out on the lake. And we knew it was going to storm, but we figured, you know, because we knew everything, um, we could get in before it stormed. 
we were wrong. And we were almost in the middle of the lake when the storm came upon us. And let me tell you something. A paddle boat is not the easiest boat to maneuver in a storm. That, that silly little awning that protects you from the sun is kind of like a sail. And I remember, I remember paddling like everything within me, just like, I got to get to the shore. I got to get to the shore. There's no way a paddle boat is surviving this storm. So I can understand why Jesus' disciples were a little worried, a little concerned. And they wake him up, don't you care? And Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, and there is peace. And he says, oh, you a little faith. You know what the scripture says? It says that they were terrified. But the storm was done. What were they terrified about? See, it's awfully concerning when there's a storm outside of the boat. It's much more concerning when you have the one who the wind and the waves know the name of inside your boat. And he's saying, you of little faith. Jesus is in the boat with us. Jesus is the boat. Jesus is the door to the ark as well. It's open now. This is the great commission that we, we all have, is that we tell the world, the door is open. The door is open. One of your board members this morning, um, elders this morning, was telling me that God was just kind of speaking to him, and he was thinking about how Noah, after the door is shut, how many people are knocking on the ark. Noah, let me in. The scripture is, inter- is surprisingly silent about any empathy for those who are on the earth, but we can imagine, in fact, there's been entire stories about those who have missed the ark. So he's telling me, yeah, the people are like, Noah, let me in. Noah, why won't you let me in? Noah, I hate you, but Noah didn't close the door. The Lord closed the door. So all of us have this great commission to tell people the door is open because there will come a point where we won't be able to because we'll be with the Lord ourselves. And the rapture happens, and the door is starting to shut. For now, we tell people the door is open. There's salvation in the middle of the storm. We live in this world of sin. And we look at all these things, and we clutch our pearls, and we're like, oh, it's getting so bad. America's going to hell in a handbasket. Instead, we should be getting to work and telling people the door is still open. There is still time. There is still time. The dove. The dove is salvation in a drowned world. After the flood, after um, the flood and the waters started subsiding, Noah and his family look out over the world and it's water. It's a drowned world. It's a dead world. And they need to know, when is it going to be safe to go out? And that is where the dove comes in. And C.H. Spurgeon's devotional morning and evening, concerning the dove, he likens it to us. That in our former state, we went around this world and we tried to find fulfillment. We tried to find something that would sustain us. The dove is not a carrion eater, meaning it doesn't eat what is dead. It only eats, it, it's, it's a vegetarian, as I understand it. And uh, so it's not going to feed upon what is dead. So when it looks out over the world and sees only death, it sees nothing for it. And we're told in the scripture that this dove, or when she couldn't find anything, comes back to Noah, and Noah reaches out and brings the dove in. So C.H. Spurgeon says, that is us. We look at this world and we see only death. Let us go back to the master who brings us in to his salvation. Dear one, are you tired of looking yet? Don't you know that this world has nothing for you? Return to the hand of the master. There is a connection between the Holy Spirit and and the dove. We, of course, know the Holy Spirit descends on Christ like a dove at the baptism of Jesus. But it's not only that either. In the creation story in Genesis, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters of a drowned earth, 
after the flood, the, wor- the world becomes what it was initially, formless in the, in the void. The Holy Spirit once hovered over those waters. Now a dove hovers over those waters, waiting for creation to start again. The olive branch in the dove's mouth and the, and the olive leaf has been now known as a symbol of peace almost universally because it is a symbol of peace between God and man that the waters are subsiding. The salvation in a drowned world, the dove was literally the salvation for Moses and his family in a drowned world. Was it safe to come out? The dove says that God's wrath is ebbing. The dove says that there is now a state of peace. The Holy Spirit is our salvation in this drowned world. Jesus promises that in this world we would have trouble, but take heart, he has overcome the world. The Holy Spirit, the dove, the Holy Spirit, he is the, he is the agent of salvation in this world. He convicts us of guilt in regard to sin, judgment, and righteousness. How crazy is it for us then to say, we don't want to preach about those things. Sin, judgment, and righteousness. We just want to talk about how to improve your life. No. Why would we impede the Holy Spirit, grieve the Holy Spirit by not, by not being partners in the work of the Holy Spirit? He convicts us of guilt in regard to sin, judgment, and righteousness because he sees a drowned world and he's looking to make life out of death. Sin, because men do not believe in me. That's what Jesus said. That's why I say the principal thing behind all sin is unbelief. Why does someone steal? Because they don't believe that God is really Yahweh, 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 God is my provider. Why do you murder? Because you don't believe that God is our avenger. I could go on and on and on. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of guilt in regard to sin because men do not believe me, in regard to righteousness because I am going where you cannot, where you cannot follow. We don't have our example of righteousness, but the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. In regard to sin, judgment, and, uh, sin, uh, judgment, judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I talked about holiness a few weeks ago. Is your life exactly like everyone else's? It shouldn't be. You shouldn't love what the world loves. Because what this world loves is the prince of this world, and he stands condemned. The dove is our salvation in a drowned world. Finally, the rainbow. The rainbow is probably one of the most misunderstood objects in all of the scripture. The rainbow is salvation from justice. The flood was literally droplets of water from the sky and water sprung up from the earth, but it came from justice. We see hell often as an eternal torture session, but it's more rightly understood as the justice of an eternal eternal God. The waters of the flood are justice. The rainbow was salvation from justice. God says that it was a symbol of his covenant to not destroy the world with water again. But why? Are men and women suddenly angels? Do they not still sin? The scripture will in detail, in excruciating detail, for the rest of the Bible tell us that is not the case. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and worthy of God's wrath and anger. But what is the answer to this? It is the rainbow. Have you, be, have you become angels since the flood? No. In fact, everything that could be said about about that generation can be said about our own. So why no flood? The answer is the rainbow. Let me explain. Bows and bows. Go to that slide if you don't mind. When we think of uh, the rainbow, we think of a bow, and we maybe think of like my cat buddy's bow tie. It's fun having the kids in the congregation. 
but it's more rightly understood, and the word that is used there is more, more in line with a war bow. Because that is the bow that God put in the sky was his war bow. The concept of a bow is, as for hunting or for, or for war is so much more ingrained than simply something you might put in your hair in the Bible. He is, um, it, is, it is an object of destruction. In destroying the world, God took his bow, loaded it with arrows of rain, and shot it into the world. When he lays down his bow, he has set aside his wrath. Can you imagine two armies at war with one another? One defeats the other, and they finally decide that we're going to lay down our arms. It's time for peace, no longer a time for war. That is what God does when he puts his bow into the clouds. It's not simply just something pretty for us to look at. I imagine there wasn't a rainbow before that time because there was no rain before that time. God sets his bow in the clouds. Because instead of destroying, because our God is not a God who is quick to anger and slow to love, but slow to anger and abounding in love. I said before that they had 120 years for repentance. They had a lot more time than that. They had 969 years to repent. It has everything to do with with, uh, Methuselah. Methuselah, we know him as the oldest person on record to have lived for 969 years. He has a connection to the rainbow, and you may not not know that. The meaning of his name speaks the exact opposite of the rainbow, however. Methuselah is a word that means man of sending forth, or man of the spear, or man of the javelin, or man of the black dart. He was a god named prophecy. His name means that he would not die until the judgment came. He is a man linked with the flood. The the name Methuselah means that God has thrown his dark javelin, he has fired off his arrow, and when he dies, the arrow finally hits. And in God's mercy, he allows Methuselah to live 969 years. Sometimes we see the judgments in the Bible like the flood, and we're like, God seems really angry. 969 years, God put up with child sacrificing. He put up with murders. He put up with every act human beings could devise in their wicked imagination amongst people he made in his own image. For 969 years, God puts up with this. And finally, the arrow hits. And the rainbow speaks of a better word than the word Methuselah because the rainbow means God has set down his 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 bow, his great grace and mercy, because he is the prince of peace. This right here, the rainbow is not a lasting peace. We might call it today a cessation of hostilities. Mankind is still sinning and still committing atrocities, and God sees it. The bow being set down does not mean that God has no other weapon. And one day, when he has taken his church away, he will bring out another But for us, at this time, we tell people that the door of the ark is open. The rainbow is in the cloud. uh, But for us, he has given us more than a rainbow. He has given us his son, the Prince of Peace. When it comes to the rainbow, I'm really going to be paraphrasing a quote from a pastor named Sinclair Sinclair Ferguson. There we go. I don't know why that was so hard to say. Ferguson, about the rainbow. He said exactly what I said right there. The bow is more like a war bow than some kind of decoration. And that God setting the bow in the sky and making a covenant that he would not drown the earth again, that was speaking of peace. 
But Sinclair Ferguson, he goes further than that. He says, where is the bow pointed at? It's pointed at God. It's pointed towards the heavens. I'm not going to get into the deeper meaning of the three heavens right now, but that's metaphorically where God is, is in the heavens. And he says, he, he hypothesizes, he thinks, you know, you wonder if Noah ever thought, God, why is your bow pointed upwards? Why would wrath be directed up instead of down? Because, Noah, thousands and thousands of years later, the thoughts and intentions of man has still been evil, and man still, man and women still deserve judgment, but, there, but your God is one who points his bow up to himself and takes the arrow. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement which made us whole. The bow points up. The bow points up. Because our God, who would no longer flood the earth, unveils his wrath on his own son so that we might be the righteousness of Christ. The, the rainbow of God's love it is a frightening thing that how our culture has co-opted the rainbow. Every time I see it, it's mainly, it's not really used for anything other than this to be happy and proud about our own sin. And that's what it is. Even if it meant something like other than what it means, you guys know what I'm talking about here. It's still, if we'd said it, okay, here's our greed rainbow. It's like tempting God. That's like kicking a sleeping tiger, a sleeping lion. Oh, he hasn't done anything the first 300 times I've kicked him, but there'll be a 301 and he's going to wake up. And we see the world and you know something? We shouldn't be angry. We shouldn't be disgusted. We should be more motivated to tell people that the rainbow points up and that the things that you celebrate are the things that Christ died for. The things you loved are the things Christ died for or else he would have to put his wrath on you. And for right now, the door is open. Get inside. The rainbow points up. Once again, to use the rainbow as, an, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a way of declaring our own pride is something so dangerous. Something so dangerous. Instead, we cling to that old rugged cross like they cling to the ark. Not to double down on our sin and pride, the bow has been set down. Come into the open door of the ark and cling to the wood of the cross. Worship team, would you please come? Come up and lead us in our final song. The big takeaway for us, the, the theological truth of the flood is this, that God doesn't weaken at sin. That all sin is sin in God's eyes that is punishable. God said in Deuteronomy that the soul's sin should die. And in the flood of Noah, we see that God is very serious about this. But in the rainbow, in the open door of the ark, and more importantly on the cross, we see that God is slow to anger and abounding in love and that he is not willing that any should perish. If you are here today, and if I asked you, if you, if you died, do you know where you're going? Do you have confidence that you're in the ark, that you are in God's salvation? Or you're wondering, I don't know. I mean, only God knows or something like that. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Repent and put your faith in him. At this last song, even in your seat or come to the altar, talk with me, I'll pray with you. But my, 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 my incredible, with all of my heart, I say to you, get in the ark while the door is still open. 
Repent and put your faith on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You are saved from something. You are saved from the righteous wrath of God because of your own sin. And all of us, we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. How amazing it is that we come to the cross in which God then takes his arrow of wrath and pierces his own son with it so that we may live. And today, if you are saved, if you are confident in your salvation, then you have a job to do. I have a job to do. We go out into this world and we tell them the door is open. Cling to the old rugged cross. In death, find life. Baptism is a symbol of the flood. You go down into the water, which is death, but then you come back up in, in new life. Would you please sing this last song with us, The Old Rugged Cross? Would you please stand?